So welcome again. Uh, my name is Nick Bratcher. I think I said that before, maybe I didn't. I'm the campus minister here at RUF at UWM. I appreciate you taking the time to come out tonight and to gather with us and to sing and to hear from God's word. Uh, this evening, we're continuing on in our series on the parables of Luke by looking at Luke 18, 1 through 8. That's the parable of the persistent widow. This portion of scripture comes at the tail end of Jesus addressing questions that are raised by Pharisees, which are these teachers in first century Rome, or first century uh, Jerusalem. These Pharisees, uh, and they're asking about the coming of, of Jesus' kingdom. In this last part of chapter 17, right before our passage, Jesus has been warning these Pharisees and his disciples that he would come again, and that uh, his second coming will not be like his first one. His first one, he comes announcing mercy and love. In his second coming, everyone will be judged like the days of Noah, where God flooded the whole earth. Sin will be dealt with. Uh, this world and all its rebellion against God will be renewed. Sickness, sorrow, pain, death, there'll be no more. And those who are responsible for it will be no more. They won't be around to do that anymore to God's creation. And the verse uh, that immediately precedes our passage tonight, Jesus actually gives, this, this is good context for what we're talking about, the verse that immediately precedes the passage we're on that you don't have printed, uh, Jesus actually gives a graphic image of vultures eating the flesh of his opponents, people who oppose his kingly rule. This is what he says will happen to people uh, when he comes back. And yet, right, we live in a time where that is not the case, right? That everyone who uh, does not fear God doesn't, isn't vulture food uh, necessarily before the whole earth is made right. We haven't gotten there. Everyone doesn't answer to Christ. They don't call him king. They don't have to answer necessarily on this earth for the ways that they hurt themselves or other people. And the question becomes, what are we to do in the meantime? Jesus is talking about how all this stuff, he's going to make everything right in the end. But it, it begs this question, what are we going to do in a world that's still, that's still full of pain and sickness and sorrow, death? Jesus tells us exactly what he desires us to do in the first verse you have printed for you there tonight. He, pray, he wants us to pray and not lose heart. That's why he tells this parable. He, he, he wants us to pray and not lose heart. This means that prayer is the key. Prayer is what will sustain us until we finish our race, either in death or we're, uh, Jesus comes back on his, his return. There's this scene in Saving Private Ryan. I don't know how many of you guys have seen this movie. Uh, it has some like pretty like haunting images in it. So I, you know, watch your own discretion. But uh, there's this one scene where Captain Miller, who's played by Tom Hanks, uh, is wounded. The last battle, he's bleeding out on a bridge. He's propped up against this vehicle, just barely able to like keep himself upright. Just propped up. He's laying down, uh, but like he's got his shoulder like on the vehicle, and. Suddenly, things go from bad to worse. He, uh, a German Tiger tank comes rolling down the bridge that he is situated on. He's too injured to run away, so he simply takes out his handgun and begins to fire it at the tank. Right? He, uh, it's a handgun versus a tank, and so he fires once, fires twice, fires three, and they're just pinging off the armor of the tank. He... Uh, it's drawing ever nearer to him, and he has basically no shot. 
and honest, if we're honest with ourselves uh, tonight, this might be how it feels to hear uh, this word from Jesus. In a world that is so difficult to live in, he tells us that we should pray and not lose heart. Some of you have experienced some of the most difficult things this world has to offer. Uh, some of the most difficult things a person can endure on this earth. You've walked maybe with sick family members, or you've suffered betrayals from friends, or you've had breakups from somebody that you thought you'd marry or you thought you could really trust. You've, you've had some really, really hard things. If statistics are to be believed, some of you have suffered real abuse, emotional or physical abuse of some kind. And Jesus' words of solace tonight are that we should pray and not lose hope. And some of you, when you hear that, it feels like Jesus is offering you a handgun in the face of a tank. Well, Jesus tells this parable in hopes that his disciples, and by extension us, would come to understand how powerful prayer really is. That it's not a handgun. Uh, that it is its own tank. It's bigger than a tank, right? It can withstand anything. And he wants to have our hearts encouraged by his faithfulness. So the question is, how does this parable motivate us in this way? How does this parable help us to do that? Luke tells us that Jesus tells the parable for this purpose, that we would pray and not lose heart. So that's what we're going to look for tonight. That's what we're going to look for as we read it, how this parable encourages us to pray and not lose hearts. Our big question, the thing we're going to just keep coming back to over and over and over again is, why do we pray and not lose heart? Why do we pray and not lose heart? All right, let's read the passage. This is Luke 18, 1 through 8. I'm going to move over so you can read it. Uh, It's also printed for you. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Let's pray. Uh, Dear Lord, thank you uh, for your word. I pray that you would open our eyes to your truth tonight. Help us to see the power we have in prayer and the hope we have in you as our King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's jump into this text as we seek to answer the question, remember this is it, why do we pray and not lose heart? Let's start in verses 2 through 5. Look with me there. Jesus begins the parable by introducing us to a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Uh, We'll get to the, the personality of the judge momentarily, but one thing we can immediately discern about him is that he is a man of power. He's a judge. This this term that Jesus uses either describes an, uh, an official in a city's legal system who, you know, does judicial things, right, who's a judge, or he might simply be a prominent person in a community who's capable of compelling people to do the right things, right, who, who's able to make them behave in certain ways uh, through his power and influence. Then in verse 3, Jesus introduces us to this widow. There are a couple things we can notice about the widow. First, She fits a well-established Old Testament motif of disenfranchised people as a whole, right? Widow, you could substitute 
any other disenfranchised person for this person. Uh, and this pops up over and over again in the Old Testament. It's really just to show that God's heart is toward people who don't have a lot of power, who are on the margins of society. This is from Exodus 22. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. This is God talking. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Jesus probably intentionally picks this widow as the subject of this parable for this reason, right? That God cares very deeply for the vulnerable people in society and she's emblematic of the most vulnerable She's the one that has had uh, inflammatory words like this said over her. And so people listening to this parable, his disciples, these other fellow Jews who would have heard this story before, would be like, oh, yeah, you got to treat widows well. That goes without saying. And this is why uh, she's, and, and, and yeah, so she stands in as somebody who's, who's on the margins, who is powerless, and she's actually physically and monetarily incapable of seeking her own good. Uh, she's helpless against anything that life throws her way. And the reason we know that is because the second thing we know about this woman is that she's so desperate that she, even though she's been wrong, she has no other recourse than to go to this judge, right? She has no other recourse than to go to a judge that is completely uh, dishonest and who doesn't care for the people well. Um, In verses three three through five, this widow is depicted as a plaintiff in some sort of lawsuit and Jesus doesn't give us the details about it, but we know that something, is wrong, something wrong has been done to her, possibly financially. And her only recourse available to her is to come to this judge. That's why she keeps knocking over and over and over again on this man's door. This is why she keeps bothering him. So not only is this judge a man of power, we also learn that he is her only option for defense. Her repetitive coming to the judge to, point, to the point that it bothers him uh, it gives us, it's, it's indicative of how much power this judge has. It's only him she can go to. He is completely necessary in order to help her. And, and in crafting the parable in this way, uh, we get our first answer to our question, why do we pray and not lose heart? This is our answer, our first answer. We pray and don't lose heart because God is powerful in a way that nothing else is. We pray and don't lose heart because God is powerful in a way that nothing else is. In depicting his disciples as powerless, as like a powerless, defenseless widow, and God as a powerful judge, Jesus is underlining something that we might be uh, hesitant to believe about God, uh, that he hears our prayers and can do something about them, right? Uh, Again, put the judge's character aside for a moment. And, And at the very least, this parable is set up to display a reality that we're living in, that you and I are like this widow. You and I are not capable of making all wrongs right. We're not, we can't heal disease. We can't stop people from hurting us. We can't avoid being sinned against. We're vulnerable. But when we talk to God, we talk to someone, the only one, the only being who is actually capable of doing those things, the only being who is capable of controlling lives. And so uh, it kind of functions like this. There's this uh, scene in The Lion King where I'm going from Saving Private Ryan to The Lion King. I'm aware of this. Uh, there's this scene in The Lion King where Simba and Nala, which is this, you know, this two lion cubs, are in, this, in the shadowy place. And they're about to get eaten by these hyenas. 
And in a last-ditch effort to, like, scare the hyenas off, Simba rears up with everything he has, and he, like, gives this roar, right? Except it's not really a roar. It's more like a coughing feline sound with a, with a sore throat, maybe. It's like, Rawr! you know, it's, like, very, very, like, harsh and mellow and, like, not at all scary. And the hyenas laugh at him. And sensing their laughter and, like, that he's, you know, doomed, he summons his courage again, and he roars again and this time it comes out as this huge terrific lion roar just the most terrifying thing you've ever heard and for a minute there Simba's like you can see it on his face is like yeah I, yeah that's right you know and then uh out of nowhere comes his father uh Mufasa yes that's his name uh comes his father Mufasa sorry I forgot the name of Mufasa uh comes bounding in and he you know defeats the hyenas and scatters them off and uh, this is really, this is what prayer is, right? Uh, that you are like Simba, who can just eke out, you know, some like, you know, and really God is this terrific, horrifying lion who can do everything that you can't. And two things happen when we pray in this way. First, when we recognize our like measly roar and our inability to control our own lives, we can be humble enough to recognize God's authority. We come to see ourselves as the needy widow that we are. That's what happens internally to us. And that means that a life that's shaped by prayer is one that's marked by humility. Let me say that again. A life that's shaped by prayer will be one that's marked by humility. It's also one that's not plagued by anxiety or worry. The worrier is the one who feels uh, powerless to control his or her life, right? The worrier is the one who's sitting in front of a bunch of hyenas and has no chance, the person who is comfortable, who does not, is not riddled with anxiety about life and the cares of this world, is somebody who knows that there's a powerful one coming, who knows that his father Mufasa is in charge. So this is what happens internally with us as we pray. And if nothing else, this would be a, a worthy enough reason to, to pray, to talk to God, to ask him for things. But that's not the only, that's only one implication of this power dynamic between the widow and the powerful judge. The other thing that happens that is not just internal, we might be tempted to just be like, yeah, like I've heard this phrase that uh, when you pray, you might not change your circumstances or God, but like God changes you. And like, that's true. I just said those things and those are absolutely true. But I think sometimes we're afraid to say this. And that is uh, with persistence, the the widow is vindicated in verse five and the judge does what she asks. Sometimes we're so busy hedging our bets against God uh, doing what he says he'll do that we don't want to say God can do miracles, that God can actually work in your life, that he hears your prayer and responds to them. But at least in this parable, we are to believe that God does hear and does respond and sometimes the way that you ask. Uh, And so I'll just say this, that God promises he'll hear your prayer and he's powerful enough to do what you ask of him. Sometimes uh, we're afraid that if we tell, we're, as Westerners, we're afraid if we tell people that, that you'll think that like God's a genie and that every time you ask him of anything, he'll do whatever you ask. And we're afraid that you won't believe in God if you don't get a prayer that you ask for. But I think that this short changes, if we're too afraid to actually believe God can do big things, we make him less lion-like than he is. And he is a powerful lion. Uh, he, and So the reality is he's not a tame lion, right? He may not be a tame lion that does whatever you ask, but he is a lion that's capable of far more than you dream. 
And so we should come to him with our dreams. And then, now the question then lingers, what about the prayers that God doesn't answer, right? Sure, this widow gets what she wants, but what about all the suffering in the world that happens day in and day out that God doesn't end? What about the awful tragedies uh, that happen every day while God does nothing? That's, that's, there's this lingering piece here. Well, look with me at verses 6 through 7. Now we get into the character of this judge. Jesus tells us that the parable he's been telling is a, is a, a form of logic called lesser to greater, which is very popular in the ancient world. He, he basically says, it goes like this, if an unrighteous judge will eventually give in to a widow he cares nothing about, how much more likely is God to answer the prayers, answer the requests and people's cries for justice that he loves for their peace and goodness? Jesus is claiming that God is actually nothing like this judge uh, in terms of his character. He's exactly like him in terms of his power, but he's nothing like him in terms of his character or disposition to those who want him to enact justice. This judge in verse 5 gives in so he'll not be beaten down. You'll notice that he says he doesn't want to be beaten down by her continual coming, by this widow's coming. In the Greek, he gives in actually so that she will not give him a black eye. That's literally what he says uh, by her continual coming. It's a term that's borrowed from boxing. And so the idea is that she is not just going to beat him down, like wear him down emotionally, but that she's just, she's so persistent that it will physically, could physically harm him, how, how much she wants uh, to, to have her, her case heard and justice enacted. This man acts entirely out of self-preservation. That's what this justice does. He's completely self-focused and says, well, fine, I'll give you what you want so you get out of my hair. But God isn't like this. He isn't like this judge who doesn't fear God or respect others. He's the opposite. That's what verses 6 through 7 tells us, that Jesus came, uh, he's the opposite because Jesus came to die to uphold the demands of the law. Right? This man has no concern for God, no fear of God, but, but Jesus died because the law means something, because God's morals mean something. Uh, and, uh, and he died in the greatest act of neighbor love that the world, that the universe has ever seen. And so it can't be that he doesn't love other people. And so if the widow's persistence resulted in a favored answer from this uh, like horrible judge, how much more eager is God to hear our prayers, to hear our, uh, our sufferings, to ask him for justice? And, and this is, honestly, this is exactly what uh, Paul says in Romans 8.32. You same line of logic. He says, He who did not spare his own son, meaning God, God who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So, honestly, we don't know. Uh, that question that I asked earlier about, like, why does God allow bad things to happen? We don't know why God continues to allow suffering. Uh, for the time being, why he doesn't answer our prayers for healing or help or justice at any given moment we pray them. But we know it isn't because he doesn't love us. We know it isn't because he doesn't love us. He's, he's more invested in our lives than we are. Uh, he literally has skin in the game. Uh, this is why Jesus asked the somewhat rhetorical question in verse 7, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? The answer in verse 8 is a resounding no. No, of course not. And not only that, God wants to give this justice speedily. 
This means that in the grand scheme of eternity, right, the, the fact that, we're all, that if you put your faith in Jesus, over the grand scheme of eternity, this moment that you feel is lasting forever where God's not answering your prayer, it's going to feel like a, like a snap, like a brief instant. Uh, it's coming speedily. This means uh, that God is eager, eager to hear our prayers, unlike this judge. He's not reluctant to answer. He's not acting out of self-preservation. He's motivated by love, by love for you. God wants to hear from you because he loves you. Uh, This is our second answer to the question, why do we pray and not lose heart? Remember, we're answering that question. This is our second answer to that. We pray and don't lose heart because God delights in our asking him for our wants and needs. So our first point was we pray and don't lose heart because God is powerful in a way nothing else is. Our second answer is we pray and don't lose heart because God delights in our asking. He delights in our asking. Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life, describes the first time his son ever spoke to his wife and him. I've never, I don't have any kids, so I can't say this for myself, but he, he depicts this pretty beautifully. He writes this, uh, when our son John was six months old, he stuck out his hand in the general direction of the butter and said, boo-boo. We didn't say John, excuse me, <clears throat> John. Now, you should say please. And it's not boo-boo, but butter. B-U-T-T-E-R, butter. And furthermore, we should talk about this. There's a self-orientation here that if left unchecked, will ruin your life. No, boo-boo was our son's first word, so we laughed and we gave him butter. That's what he says, Right? And this is, God's, this is how God relates to us. This is his fatherly orientation to us. He longs to hear from us, our worries and our anxieties. Sometimes we don't come to God with these things because we think, he doesn't want to hear this from me. I, he doesn't, he, my problems are so petty. I don't think he cares about this. He won't want to do anything about this. And the, the reality is we're shortchanging how, how desperately God wants to meet us in our, uh, in our afflictions. We're shortchanging him and his capacity to love us. He wants to hear from us so that when he answers our prayer, we see him do it. So just as your parents delighted to hear you ask for things, even things that were bad for you at the time, like this whole stick of butter, and they couldn't do anything for you good, so also God really does love to hear you ask for things. But why? Right? That's the question. Why? Well, why does God love, love like that? Well, look with me at the latter half of verse 8. Uh, Jesus has given these two great reasons for why we should pray and not lose heart, that God is a powerful judge and delights to hear us ask him for what we need. But as he concludes, Jesus poses this question. Despite the abundant evidence that he has just listed right, in this parable, despite the things that you can draw from this parable and how good God is, he asks this question at the end, when, this, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, at first, that might make you feel like uh, Jesus had like a weird misdirection. He's been talking about prayer, and then he's like, will I find faith on the earth? Uh, but this actually follows uh, from what he's been saying because it's a sobering question. It, what it implies is that despite the goodness, despite everything that he's just told us about who God is, that he's not like this judge, that he does care for us, that he wants to hear from us, that he's powerful enough for us. Despite all those things uh, we, that he's claimed about himself and demonstrated to us, we don't always believe it. Uh, he's, asking, he's asking the question, will anyone be faithful in response? 
yeah, I, I'm that good. God really is that good. But when I come back, will any of you have believed it? That's what he's asking. Uh, and that forces us to think about that, to think about that question. Uh, he has told this parable toward the end that the spiritual significance of God's power and grace toward us would motivate us to a life of, of prayer and perseverance akin to the window, widow in the story. But here as he closes, Jesus is posing the question, despite God's goodness, will he find faith? He's told us all about how good he is uh, and how uh, we need to have this life like this widow that's persistent and prayerful, that's pers- that perseveres. And he's asking, are you going to be the widow? Will I find you like this widow? Are you responding in this way to grace? And this is our third and final answer to the question, uh, why do we pray and not lose heart? We pray and don't lose heart because it's an act of faith. We pray and don't lose heart because it's an act of faith. It's part of what it means to place your faith in Jesus. So our three answers, we, don't, uh, we pray and don't lose heart because God is powerful in a way nothing else is. We pray and don't lose heart because God delights in our asking. And we pray and don't lose heart because it's an act of faith. It's part of what it means to have faith in Jesus is to pray. Uh, a, number of you, uh, a number of you already know this about me, I think. Uh, but when I was 12, uh, I, I don't say any of this as like, you got to go do this. this is, you know, just pray more or whatever. Uh, when I was 12, my father uh, died of skin cancer. And when I was 23, 10 years later, uh, my mother passed away of breast cancer. And so uh, we prayed for both of them for a number of months uh, my dad for a whole year, my mom for about a year and a half. We laid hands on them. We asked God to heal them. We believed that he could. Uh, Jesus tells us in Matthew seventeen twenty that if we have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you can say to a mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. I, I placed my trust totally in Jesus, uh, asking that he would save my dad, that he'd heal my mom, over and over and over again, uh, just like this widow, daily, you know, Lord, please. Every time I got a second to even not, you know, just to think about anything besides, you know, schoolwork or something, I was thinking about, God, will you heal my mom? Will you heal my dad? Uh, I've been there. I've been, like, if you're here tonight and you're like, I just don't know if God's really hearing any of my prayers. I get that you say that he is. I get that he claims that he is. I've been there too. I, I, I want you to know that. I, I get that feeling. Um, and the reality is, at the, at the end of the day, he didn't answer my prayer the way that I wanted him to. And uh, my parents both went on to be present with Jesus. And for a long time after that, I really struggled to pray. I really struggled to pray. What difference could it make? I kept saying to myself. And I became complacent. Uh, sometimes we can hide behind God's sovereignty. Uh, here in RUF, we believe that God is sovereign. We believe God is powerful and in control of everything. But sometimes we can hide behind that and say, like, there's no need to pray. Uh, there's no need to pray. He's just going to do whatever he's going to do anyways, right? I, I wanted to maintain God's good. Yeah, 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 God's good. He, I, I see that, that he's, he doesn't allow, you know, my, the answers that I gave you, I was given to myself, and I told myself, like, we don't know why bad things happen, but God at least loves us. And I was like, yeah, God loves us, which means I don't have to pray. There's no need for it anymore because he's just going to do whatever he's going to do. And whether I pray or don't pray, he's just going to do, he's going to do his thing. And because he loves me, he's just going to do the right thing. So what does it matter? Um, and uh, 
that version of Christianity is not the one that we want to espouse here in REF. It's not the one the Bible tells us about. Um, this version uh, where God asks, um, will you pray? Do you have faith? Uh, this, is, this is the truth of Christianity that uh, God isn't asking you to be a fatalist. For you to believe in him and his power doesn't mean that you're a fatalist. doesn't mean that like, no matter what happens, God is just going to like, do whatever he's going to do. Uh, that's not faith. That's not the same thing as faith. The reason Jesus poses this question at the end of the parable is because it's not easy. Because it's not easy to pray and not lose heart. Uh, after he's told, told us all these good things that are 100% true about God, he still knows at the end of the day, this is going to be a challenge. It's going to be a challenge for you to pray uh, and to not lose heart because you still live in this world. Despite all the things that I've done for you, despite all the goodness, and I've done a lot of good that would warrant your trust in me, uh, I know you're going to struggle. And I want you to ask yourself, are you this kind of person who's going to fight through it? Um, Are you going to let me enable you? Are you going to let my love for you power you? Are you going to let my goodness to you power you through those moments um, where you might feel doubt, where you might say, like, you know, God's going to do whatever he's going to do. And so there's really two ditches we can fall into at the end of this as we draw to a close. There's two ditches you can fall into. You can fall into this fatalistic mindset where God is in control, right? Or you can fall into this mindset when uh, life doesn't go your way that, um, that nothing is in God's control, that there's no use in praying because it's also like there's no meaning in anything. Right? You, can, you can say, on the one hand, God's in control of everything, so there's no need to pray. Or you could say, there's no need to pray because uh, God's not actually there. He doesn't actually care for me. And both of those things are lies, according to this passage. Instead, the truth is that God is there. He does hear you. He does love you. Uh, that he loves me. That despite everything that my, that's happened with my parents, that uh, he continues to call me to pray because he's a father who wants to hear from me. He wants to hear my anxieties and my cares, and he is going to answer them. And one day, in a way I don't even understand, he's going to answer my prayer for my mom and my dad. Uh, one day they'll be healed in heaven uh, when, when he comes back and he establishes his uh, reign here. So uh, we're not to drift into fatalism, uh, to which I once belonged, and neither can we fall into triumphalism that says, you know, the pain isn't real, nothing matters, uh, it, it, it's all meaningless. Faith, faith, this life that God, that Jesus is calling to you uh, is the way forward despite life's challenges. We pray and we don't lose hope because God is worthy of our faith. Let's pray. Uh, Lord,